All right. Well, thanks for joining the show, PJ. Uh, really excited to have you here as part of Sokka's Is That So, the podcast series on tech, entrepreneurship, finance, and all that good stuff. But uh, yeah, first of all, a big welcome. Thanks, Sokka. Great to be here. Uh, excited to chat. Great. So why don't we start off a little bit about your background and how you first got into product? I understand that you've had a pretty interesting career so far, but how did you first get into product? Yeah, so product management was something that I kind of discovered during a summer internship in undergrad. So I studied bioengineering at UC San Diego, and I was able to get a job my sophomore year of college at a company called Life Technologies. And this was in the life sciences um, way before my journey into deeper consumer tech but they had product managers at this company that were working on different product lines. So Life Technologies was uh, sort of like an Amazon, if you will, of the research lab. So they had all these different items that you could buy that would be useful, different machines, different consumables that you'd use to run experiments. And so there'd be different product managers for these different product lines that would figure out really what does the customer need what are the main problems that they have and how can we design a product that will help solve those problems in an efficient way? Nice. And so, I mean, starting off with that, let's go a bit into actually creating an MVP uh, for the first time, because I imagine there was no Amazon available for this industry prior to this company, or maybe they were, but the product might not have been so good. So let's say someone wants to start off creating a product, an MVP, because they see a problem in the market. I mean, what are the first steps? How do you even go about doing that? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, the answers evolved uh, over time. If you're doing something that's in the software space, there's a lot of different tools that are, are now available and in many cases free for you to be able to build something super quickly and be able to show it to people and get feedback. And I think um, being able to be open to getting feedback quickly in your design process is really helpful because sometimes you can really get in your head about what you think a user might need, but the more that you can actually have a conversation with them and honestly observe them in sort of their natural environment, you can learn a lot from that. So uh, some of the main tools that really are standards these days are things like Figma, um, which you may have heard of. It's a collaborative design tool that allows you to make mockups that can be mirrored to a mobile device. So it almost looks like a, a real working app. And on the web, there's other tools like Bubble, which is a no-code solution and allows you to build an app that can have even like login functionality without having to write a line of code. And so there's these really great tools for if you have an idea, you don't necessarily need to hire a developer in order to get it to the point where someone can actually react to it and say, hey, yeah, this is actually really useful and, and here's why versus, oh, actually, this is something that I don't need. What I need looks more like this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And thank goodness for all these tools. I can imagine 10 to 15 years ago how hard it must have been to code from scratch. So the ability to use a no-code tool must mean that product um, MVPs are much easier to create. But then even speaking about the iteration and the cycle of changing products over time, is that a bit easier now because of these 
low code facilities that allow you to perhaps test out features and roll them out quickly? Or has that product cycle still remained the same as 15, 20 years ago? Well, I'd say it really depends on the size of the company and the stage of the product and its life cycle. Um, a lot of these tools are quite flexible in the early stages. You can be swapping out colors, you can be swapping out buttons, trying different flows in a really scrappy way. Um, there's a lot of tools that have emerged that are really helpful for large scale companies that are much further along in terms of A-B testing frameworks. Uh, Optimizely is an example. And uh, there's a lot of ways to do this um, in, in ways that require a lot less work kind of to your point of if you want to make a change, how can you do that in a way that's truly nimble and doesn't require five different people to touch something in order to get it out. Fascinating. And in terms of even prioritizing features, you know, I once worked as a marketer, uh, a senior product marketer for a fintech company. And I would look at, you know, trends in the market and what our competitors were doing to try and feed it to our product teams in order to prioritize new features or even new platforms to use going forward. But from your perspective, um, how did you guys, first of all, figure out what new features to create? And then uh, more specifically, um, how did you prioritize what was most important versus what was least important? So product strategy is definitely both an art and a science. And it's usually really helpful to first think about the user and the business and how you're going to be tying them together. So starting first on the user side, uh, we talk a lot about something called first principles thinking, uh, which really means you're able to get down to the core why of why you're doing something and what is the value it'll be providing. And so once you're really clear on what is that value you're trying to provide to a user and why it's important that you're providing that, you can build up onto that a whole list of different problems, solutions, and eventually feature sets that are going to be important. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the reasons why I decided to go to business school is to not only learn about how to build products, but how to build a business as well. And so this is where it comes to the actual cash flows and being able to capture the value that you're providing to users. And so uh, in this way, it's important to really understand cool, if we're building this product, do we understand how we're going to be able to build out revenue streams for it and how we can grow those revenue streams? And obviously, there's a variety of different types of products you can be building, whether it's a subscription service or, who you knows, something in crypto. Each of those will look a little bit different, but at the end of the day, uh, you have your revenue, you have your costs, and you're figuring out ways that those can be driven by these different products that you're prioritizing. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. I recall some of our product guys used to mention that they would build or prioritize features based on what they could monetize, but there are other things that they would build to improve the customer experience or to improve delight, um, which doesn't seem like it generates revenue on the surface, but then the retention of those customers or the lifetime value is a lot longer because they enjoy using the product and they're a bit more sticky to it. Um, so it's interesting to think of that dynamic, but you touched on something that's really interesting, which was um, you know, the ability to have a business sense as a product guy or a product specialist. Um, do you feel like a lot of uh, product managers, uh, project managers, people that are focused heavily on product lack the business skills um, or at least they don't 
have that skill set to complement their 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 everyday work, or do you feel like most product people have that business sense to think about you know the commercialization and things that you were just mentioning? Yeah, so I'd really break it into two different categories of being a large scale company product manager versus being a product person at an early stage startup. When we think about the sort of business fundamentals that are necessary for a large scale company, this is more around your ability to, to specialize and be able to optimize specific parts of the product experience within a larger product ecosystem. And so depending on the role and sort of how close you are to uh, the cash flows, it is important to have an understanding on how your features are going to be driving uh, incremental revenue at the end of the day. And it ends up being quite analytical uh, at these larger scale companies. Now, if you take a look at the earlier stage ones, which is where uh, sort of my interest and focus has been more recently, this is uh, involving a lot in terms of business strategy of really where do you fit within the market and what are those opportunities for expansion of entire new product lines, right? And, and really what should your mix look like if you want to be a, a high tier or a, or a low cost item, for example, and uh, to really be able to, to dig into some of the more strategic elements that uh, can be quantitative, but oftentimes are, are qualitative as well when you are looking at uh, the market and really where you think your opportunities lie. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head when you said quantitative and qualitative. It kind of reminds you of what you said earlier on, where it's kind of like a science and an art as well, right? So you have to look at the hard data, but then you have to have this sort of intrinsic or intuitive feel uh, for certain things. But um, I'm really curious, what's a product that you've come across, um, SaaS or otherwise, that you really sort of enjoy or you were kind of taken aback in terms of like, wow, this is a great product. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint as to mine. Um, it's the Tesla truck that I saw. I thought that was oh. a fascinating product. Yeah, I think Joe Rogan even said it's one of the best things he's ever seen. But that's a product that's like, you know, stark and amazing. But is there anything for you that comes to mind that you've seen, whether it's software or otherwise, that you're kind of like, wow, this is this is pretty cool? Yeah, I mean, maybe not something that's blown me away, but a product that I spend a lot of time in is Spotify. And uh, I'm an avid music listener, collector, curator. You could call me a crazy playlist guy. I have over 200 playlists that I've created for every mood moment, depending on how I'm feeling, sort of what I'm trying to go for. So I've really pushed Spotify as a platform to its limits in terms of um, just different ways that you can be organizing things, um, using it to discover new music, to connect with friends and, and sort of learn about what kind of music they've been listening to. Um, I even built an app recently in order to be able to connect into Spotify's uh, SDK to learn more about the types of music that I'm listening to. So uh, I've been getting more and more into mixing music and, uh, being an amateur DJ, if you will. And <laughs> there's a lot of data that Spotify has that you can't access through their main UI about what is the key, what is the beats per minute, uh, how danceable is this song, what is the energy? This is all data that Spotify has that 
as a developer, you can get access to and, and learn a little bit more about um, your own music preferences or, or really what stands out in order to make more creative mixes. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm going to say DJ PJ during this podcast. So let me just get it out right there. <laughs> yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, man. No, but that's cool. You know, Spotify uh, is a product that I absolutely love, too. And I think one of the things they got really right was sort of the personalization. Anytime I go to like the Discover Weeklies, you know, the songs that are there are really on spot because it follows the tempos that I like or the types of lyrics, you know, instrumentals. So I think they've done a great job there. And then on the back end, there's a lot more they, that they could be doing because, as you know, I kind of make music as well. And the Spotify for Artists helps us see where our audiences are. You know, is your song popular in Russia for some reason versus Belarus or, you know, it's, it's a really interesting product. But yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, Spotify is probably one of the best uh, SaaS products that I've seen out there. Um, so, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about design now, kind of changing the, the, the course of things, because I had no idea how important design was as part of the product experience, right? There's actually building the product, but then there's that intuitiveness, the ease of use, the, you know, sometimes you're just using a product and it just flows like water. Uh, how do you get your product to be as intuitive or human-centric, should we say, um, compared to others? I mean, is there, are there some common principles or is there a way that you think about yeah. it? You work with designers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had the privilege of getting to take some classes in um, human-computer interaction at UC San Diego in undergrad, which is one of the premier institutions in the space. And it, it was really cool to actually see it taught um, in an academic manner about certain concepts that you're referring to, like um, the F scan patterns of the way that people tend to consume uh, content from, from left to right, up and down, uh, at least in the US and, and other equivalent or, or similar countries, um, as well as just being able to think about um, dis distances and efforts and, and frictions in terms of number of taps that people need to perform in order to complete an action. And I think one of the things that really shaped has shaped me as sort of a UX strategist is being such an Apple fanboy, funny enough. So the I didn't get my first iPhone until later in college, but uh, that was a life-changing moment for me. It inspired me to eventually become an iOS developer for three years in, in industry and learned a lot through that process. But I think, um, honestly, the more that you're using apps honestly i'm a little bit addicted to my phone and and trying to curb that usage a little bit but the more apps that you've encountered the more patterns you're sort of subconsciously absorbing in terms of what's a great experience and it's not uncommon in the ux world to borrow different things that you've seen work really well uh, i remember when i was at uber for example we were looking a lot uh, these different tray components that you could use to be able to expand and collapse and, and scroll and be able to have a lot more content than would just fit on a single screen because you have extra space that goes uh, below that people can be able to access when they want, but collapse when they don't. And so just an example of one of the many patterns that 
we were looking at while also looking at what Lyft was doing. There's a lot of copying back and forth where it can be really hard to remember who came up with which idea first. Uh, but the idea that there are certain trends of what's hot in terms of ways of designing apps. So there's there's a lot of um, sort of borrowing, but also just some underlying principles about what makes a smooth experience and why. And a lot of that just comes down to, can you meet the user where they are by surfacing the things that will be most relevant to them? And can you reduce the amount of effort that they need to put in um, effort is different for if they're having to pick from a list versus having to type out exactly what they want versus having to turn on their microphone and sort of say what they maybe want. So tons of different trade-offs you have to uh, think through in order to make the right product that you want. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how you mentioned that you typically borrow from a lot of people. I'm reminded of the time when, you know, Instagram brought out reels and I'm like, Hey, this is very similar to like TikTok. This is kind of the same feature set, you know? And then you see YouTube releases like shorts or something like that. And you're like, Hey, I've seen this, you know, feature of this product before. And so you start to see that, you know, in every product, um, because I'm guessing there's some, uh, engagement or design principles or whatever it is, that's making that, um, a new sort of way of thinking when it comes to the product and the experience. But I wanted to touch on the bad side of things, um, or, or the, the other side of product, which is oftentimes people are designing products to make them more addictive, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or to be used as much as possible. So, you know, to the point that it's affecting human behavior and the way we think, and, you know, we're spending 23 out of the 24 hours on these apps. So is there ever a time that you can perhaps over-design or make the app so good that people spend all their time in there um, and, you know, they don't get to live regular or healthy lives, do you ever think about that? Or how do you think we can include the sort of understanding of that concept when it comes to product design um, and not perhaps just making it addictive for everyone to use? It's a great topic and it's a topic really of our generation. It's something that product managers need to be thinking about a lot. I mean, you've seen what's come out in the news um, in terms of like the, the Facebook whistleblower and the like. Um, it's it's really important that we're having these conversations. Um, one person that comes to mind is Nir uh, Ayal, who's written uh, books on this topic. I really recommend to viewers that you check out some of his work. Um, for me personally, I've specifically chosen not to work at companies that are relying on advertising as a mainline stream of, of revenue. Uh, I've just felt that with those companies, there is this incentive to make the technology more addicting. And I try to focus on companies that are really able to provide value that hopefully users are going to be willing to pay for uh, so that there's not this uh, misalignment of incentives of um, just trying to get people hooked uh, in a way. And so I think um, there needs to be more honestly, transparency uh, around how addictive some of these uh, technologies are. I think that the way that consumer sentiment is shifting, uh, people will start to demand more from companies to, to be more open about exactly how addictive uh, what they have is and, and sort of find that middle ground where people obviously enjoying getting value out of these different technologies, but 
there comes a point where uh, the benefits that they're getting with each incremental minute spent um, isn't really adding value to, to their lives. And so it's a very personal thing. Uh, everyone has a different sort of stance on how much it is enough. And so um, I think just as long as people are at least aware of the amount of time that they're spending and hopefully being given tools to help set up their experience in ways that are going to serve them better. That's what I'm hoping companies end up spending time on. And unfortunately, they may, may need to spend time of it only through um, pressure coming from users and people demanding this type of thing. But uh, I think the first step is to be having the conversation around it just so that uh, these companies can be held up at least a little bit more accountable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you there. Uh, you mentioned something that was pretty interesting, which is the incentives of the different parties that are in there. So for instance, uh, you know, the customer has the incentive to get something done really quick. You, you as a business are trying to provide value, but then you know, also keep them on your platform if you can. There's so many different incentives there. And I wanted to talk about or ask you about the incentive of, let's say a venture capitalist that's investing in a product, right? From their perspective, they wanna see that your product is being used as often, you know, it's engaging, those kind of addictive metrics we're just speaking about. To the venture mm -hmm. capitalist that's investing in the business, those are all good things, right? User engagement is up, you know, downloads are up, every, everything looks on the positive side of things. But um, asking about that sort of venture capitalist product perspective, I don't know how much experience you have here, but typically, when venture capitalists are looking at uh, specific products to make evaluations, to invest and all those kinds of things, what are the, some of the things that you see them asking um, or what are the, the things you need to have from a product perspective to show a venture capitalist for them to give you that series A, series B funding, whatever it is? Are there any things that come to mind? Yeah, sure. So I think, again, it's helpful to be able to break apart later stage, larger scale companies and the earlier stage startups that may be going for these uh, VC dollars. So when it comes to technology addiction, we're mainly looking at the platforms that people are using every single day, maybe, maybe even the app that I'll open right after we get off of this call, right? Uh, people want that dopamine hit, want to know what their friends are up to, want to be entertained. And so those are the much more established companies where uh, you really only have to I mean, you mainly have to worry about uh, addiction if, if you are one of the top apps that, that people are using. And there are apps that are maybe uh, come and go like the, the latest Flappy Bird. But I'm talking more about like the social media platforms um, that just have so much influence over how people are behaving today. Those are the ones um, that need to worry more about those um, metrics coming to a point where it's it's no longer perhaps healthy for people. Um, when we're looking more in the VC world, uh, you're right that there's uh, definitely an incentive for companies to hit certain metrics uh, in order to unlock new rounds of funding. The way that um, different rounds and raises typically work in um, venture capital is that a startup will need to try to hit a uh, roughly agreed upon crucial uh, business milestone in order to really prove out that things are going well enough to justify that next round of capital raise. And so it, it's quite common for them to be setting metrics uh, around user growth and 
engagement and um, eventually around revenue as well. But depending on the type of product, uh, the revenue part can come much later. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I wanted to ask about that in terms of the metrics that you commonly use to measure the success of a product. What are the, the ones that come to mind? And are there any that you think are perhaps not given the importance that they deserve of all the, the metrics you look at as, as a product guy? It's an interesting question. Um, I can uh, talk about the flip side of something that comes to mind. So uh, one of my previous employers, we would take a look at our net promoter score on a daily basis. And I thought that that was a bit much because it was perhaps more of a guardrail metric. You can, you can think about metrics in a couple of different categories. There's success metrics and guardrail metrics being some of the two main classes. And so uh, a success metric is going to be one that you'll define in order to um, set a target and a, and a goal of whether or not you're headed in the right direction uh, through changes that you're making to your product, expansions, and uh, improvements that you're making. Whereas a guardrail metric is a little bit more like a canary in the coal mine, where if something isn't going right, it'll show up in the metrics. But uh, metrics can be really difficult where uh, if you're measuring something, but you're not really sure about how you could be moving it, then it's not very motivating. And if you're tracking something that is pretty far removed from uh, the inputs to your business, then it's really hard to make sense of why something um, might be changing. So uh, the metrics that I, I tend to like, and this is something that I actually heard from um, Tony Zhu of DoorDash when he uh, came to speak at Stanford is to focus on these inputs uh, even more so than the outputs sometimes. So an, an input for a DoorDash would be like the number of um, different vendors that they have on their platform, right? That's helping to seed their marketplace with more selection for customers, uh, which leads to this virtuous cycle um, and the output then ends up being revenue, which you obviously want to affect. But when it comes down to being able to onboard more vendors, it's very clear how that can then influence some of the type of work that might need to get done in terms of being able to perhaps go to additional geographies where you can add more of those vendors or, or figuring out uh, ways of having vendors refer other vendors or just streamlining that process so that the time it takes to, to sign someone up um, has been decreased. Yeah, I've been through so many onboarding experiences that are quite frankly just so poor. They're still asking for basic information. And then you see other onboarding experiences where it's like you can log in with two clicks, log in with like LinkedIn or something like that, and you've signed up to the product. And then there are others that are honestly just a pain to go through as you're, as you're signing up. But um, are there any tips or tricks that you've noticed for the best sort of onboarding experience uh, that you could share with our audience that they could learn or, you know, or, or a particular onboarding experience that you've loved perhaps? Yeah, uh, I built a onboarding experience a bit earlier in my career that I learned a lot from. And it was an interesting exercise in product marketing where we were looking to help people understand the solution that we were offering them. So there's a certain amount of education 
And there is an opportunity to then upsell them and, and capture revenue by suggesting that they upgrade to the paid experience. Um, what we ended up finding was that a lot of people weren't that interested in the education part. And because we were so proud of what we uh, were trying to, to sell them, we ended up having more screens than maybe they wanted to see. And it got to the point where it can be quite surprising when you look at some of these metrics, any kind of funnel and drop off uh, can be depressing sometimes about the number of people that actually continue versus get distracted by some push notification that's come in and just bounce from your experience. And so we had to actually modify that experience to be much shorter and more compressed, but trying to actually have most of the same information just with fewer screens and we saw, I believe, like a 2x improvement in uh, our, our conversion rate of people um, getting through the flow. So all that to say, uh, when it comes to onboarding, there's always trade-offs in terms of how much information do people need right then and there? And, and how much are you adding steps that's preventing them from getting to the end of the experience to the point that some of them might not ever make it? I love that point you know, show them as much as they need to get the job they're trying to get done, right? Sometimes we try and do too much, almost like less is more at times, you know? Uh, yeah. When I was working with product marketers as well, I recall a time that we did an A-B test and removed a few steps and, you know, the add-to-cart rate went through the roof. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe sometimes we don't need that information. I think you mentioned it pretty well, which was sort of first principles thinking. What do you actually need for them to get to this the solution for the problem they have you know what i mean exactly and it can be tricky because when you're the one that's developing the feature and it's within an overall ecosystem that feature that moment in time is your baby and you're so proud of it and you want to tell the user about all the reasons why they should click next and you really have to sort of remove your own ego from it sometimes and and like you were saying really understand what do they need and are there ways that we can help them get that information perhaps later when they're more interested in, in learning about it? And so I think the easy way is to do it in sort of a blocking fashion where you do it all up front and there's really only one way to get the information and only one way to go through. But more and more companies are starting to invest in having ways of trying to present that information in more dynamic and contextual ways to really meet the user, to provide the information or the upsell uh, when it's most relevant. And while that ends up uh, being a more expensive thing to do, it, it usually ends up uh, leading to um, better metrics. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Well, we're almost getting to the end of this conversation. Honestly, we could speak for hours because there's so much knowledge that's being shared here. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of your experience and product, honestly, thanks for sharing all the great insights you've had previously. Um, I think a lot of people get a lot of, of insights and sort of juicy bits that they can use here in their everyday lives as they're thinking about their MVP, their product, or even hiring a product person um, and getting to that next stage. But um, if you could leave the audience with sort of one or two pieces of advice, uh, what would those two pieces of advice be? So think about ourselves 10 years ago in college you know, uh, and we're interested in product, what would you tell the younger version of DJ PJ? Great question, Saka. 
I'd first start by saying that passion ends up being worth more than you realize in the beginning, especially. And so when you don't have a track record, you don't have experience yet, finding products that you're really excited about ends up showing when you come into contact with a potential employer. And so what people really don't realize is that if you want to become a product manager, it's a combination of do you have the skill set? Do you have the right network and sort of trust built? And do you have a portfolio that you can point to? And so all these things can actually be acquired before having your first product manager job. And people don't always think about how to prepare the right way. And so when it comes to being able to, to meet people, uh, LinkedIn's definitely helped. Never be shy about reaching out if you want to learn from somebody. Um, networking is always really key. Uh, next, in terms of having the skills, there's a ton you can learn on YouTube in terms of being able to develop, say, a, a Figma prototype or even using different um, resources that can teach you how to think like a product manager. One of the ones that I particularly like is called stellarpeers.com. And lastly, when it comes down to having a track record, this is the one that can seem the hardest to people because it seems like a chicken and an egg. But what you'll actually find is that it is actually feasible to build your own sort of mock product brief off of, say, one of your favorite products. So if you wanted to add a feature that makes it easier to um, book concert tickets or buy merchandise on the Spotify platform, that's something that you can put together yourself. Even if you don't work at Spotify, you still can understand the user base. You can define a user problem. You can go through a couple of different iterations of potential solutions. And all of a sudden you have a work sample, even if you've never had a job in product management before. And so I just really encourage people to channel their passion into each of these three areas. And before you know it, you could be in product yourself. Nice. I love that. Uh, the famous last words of the podcast episode with PJ on product. I love your product, guys, because you guys are more show, don't tell, as opposed to everyone else that can just talk for days. You guys actually deliver value. So uh, yeah, thanks so much, PJ. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you for questions or anything like that, uh, how can they reach out to you? Do you prefer LinkedIn or? Yeah, LinkedIn's great. It's just PJ L O U R Y, and you can find me there. Awesome. Thanks, PJ.